David did a great job reading that scripture. And as he was reading it, I was reminded of the greatness of the words in verse 19 that talks about uh, our hearts being at rest in the presence of God. Uh, Augustine, a uh, great 4th century, uh, one of the church fathers of the 4th century, wrote uh, a little book, became very, very famous even into our own time, called Confessions. It's entitled Confessions, and at the beginning of it, he talks about human hearts and how they're restless and how they're moving to and fro and the stress and the anxiety, but our hearts find rest when we, f- are, when we find our hearts resting in God. And it brings up sort of an interesting question when you think about what it is that John's saying about being able to be in the presence of God and our hearts being at rest because a lot of us from time to time wonder whether or not we're really saved. Or we've done something that that we know is absolutely wrong. We've done something that we know is, is counter to the will of God and we wonder whether or not we're still in God's good graces. Back in 1979, Ellen and I were freshmen at ACU, and we started attending a church on the other side of of town from Abilene Christian, uh, a church called uh, uh, South 11th and Willis. And it was a a congregation at that time that that had a lot of college students, and at the beginning of the semester, there were some that were pouring in that that, uh, that were really excited about being at college and, and being a part of a gigantic uh, college group. And, and I remember right there in that first semester, uh, one of the sermons that was preached, a great sermon, uh, there was a young woman, a young freshman student that went down. She was in tears. She responded at the invitation. She wanted prayers for the church uh, for her to be forgiven of her sins and to be restored to God and these kinds of things. And it was, it was, it was a really poignant moment. And then the next week at the invitation, she went down again, same thing. And then the following week, she went down again. And by the fourth week, she went down brokenhearted, sobbing, asking God to forgive her. The shepherds of that church took her aside to talk to her about what it was that was troubling her heart and to maybe instruct her mind, but at least re-instruct her mind and heart over what it means to be saved by God's grace. Now, I think we all identify a little bit with that as we we try to live to God's glory in this life. Every disciple, I believe, has at least one moment in their life when they question whether or not they've been saved. Think about the, the Apostle Peter. You know, Peter, I don't want to say he's braggadocious, but there towards the end of the Gospels, He's pretty adamant that regardless of what any of his his band of brothers do when it comes to denying Christ, he's never going to deny Christ. He's ready to die with Christ. He'll defend Christ, but he'll never deny Christ. I don't care what the other knuckleheads are going to do. I'm not denying you, he says. And Jesus says, before the night is over, you're going to deny me three times, and then the rooster will crow. And that's what happens. And it's a crushing and that's not even a big enough word to describe emotionally what happens to Peter. He is broken because of that. Well, we speed forward in the story. We're now um, several days down the road after the resurrection. Jesus has told his disciples that they need to go up to, to Capernaum. They need to go up into Galilee. They know where to go. They go to the North Shore. They go to, to Capernaum. They're out there fishing. They come on shore when Jesus reveals himself to them. And in a deliberate process, 
Jesus reminds Peter and helps Peter to come to terms with his sin, but to remind him that he's also connected to Jesus. Do you love me, Peter? He asks. And the answer is yes. And Peter knows that Jesus knows this. And it's a very poignant moment. It's not going to be the last time that the Apostle John, who wrote that gospel, is going to see that kind of thing happen where people struggle with something that they've done in light of God's grace and struggle with whether or not they continue to be saved. There's, there's a, 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 a really important letter found at the end of our, our New Testament. It's the letter of 1 John. And John is at the other end of his life than his time when, with Jesus. And he's, he's struggling with a church that's struggling with what it means to be saved. And, and how do you know that you are saved? And whether or not you're saved unless you have some special knowledge. And in this, this letter, known to us as First John, he writes to this church in Asia Minor. He says, if you really want to know whether or not you're saved, here's a quick way in your mind to think about it and, and to verify that you're going in the direction of God, that you're going in the direction of God's kingdom, that your home is in heaven and that you're God's son, that you're God's daughter. He says, have you had an experience with Jesus who came in the flesh? Do you realize that you have had an experience with the God who created the heavens and the earth now become flesh on earth? Have you had an experience through the gospel with the Christ who came in the flesh? Number two, do you seek to obey God's will? Do you find your heart going in the direction of obedience rather than rebellion? It doesn't mean that at times you're going to struggle and at times you're not going to understand God's will, but do you find your heart inclining to do what it is that is God's will? And then number three, and this was sort of the easy one for them to figure out, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And John repeats that over and over and over and over. And one of the places that he repeats that is in 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 10. This is right before the text that David read for us. He says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So one of the ways that John is helping his people to understand the, the, the sense of being saved is, do you believe that you've had this encounter with the God who came in the flesh? That you are, when you encountered Christ, encountering God. And if so, do you obey Him? You've met God. Are you obeying God? And if you're obeying God, then you're going to love your brothers and sisters. So the question, though, remains, why do our hearts condemn us when we do wrong in such a way that it makes us doubt? Well... The, the feeling is like accusation. You ever had your heart and your head kind of accuse you? Your heart is in, and head are, are sort of at odds, and it's making you feel uncomfortable and a little unbalanced in your relationship with God? Your head, head says to the heart, I told you you should have thought about what you posted on Facebook. Now everybody's mad at you. And the heart says, I know, I know, but I felt the need to express myself, and I feel pretty bad right now that I've hurt some people's feelings. 
Or the head says, I've always told you to think before you speak. And the heart says, well, my emotions just got away from me. And I said what I said. That is not really your heart accusing you, but it is your heart feeling condemned. When a child does something wrong, think about you know, parents, especially young parents. When, when you're raising a child, you're teaching your child. I mean, a child is learning all kinds of things. In a healthy, functional family, you have a child that's learning all kinds of things. And then when that child does something wrong and gets into trouble, it can be a frightening thing for that kid. The kiddo is young, the kiddo is immature, the kiddo is inexperienced, the kiddo is learning new things every day. And one of those things is to learn that when you make a bad decision or you decide to, do, uh, to go against your parents' will, that there's, there's going to be consequences for that. Another thing that the kiddo is learning is that there's something pretty special about a parent's love. And even though that kid, that child, feels shame, and even though that kid will not look into the disappointed eyes of, of that parent, that child is learning through that interaction that there is an unconditional love for that kiddo, even in the midst of doing something wrong. And so one of the things that John does in the text is to help us to come to grips with the love of God, but also to kind of have some insight into why, at times, our hearts seem to condemn us. And the first one is this, we are failing at love. We fail to love the way that we ought to love. And one of the reasons we, we struggle with this heart condemnation is found in verse 14. John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. How do you know that you have passed from death into life? Because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in what? Death. Death is not natural for us. It's natural for a fallen world, but it's not natural for us. And so when someone really disappoints us and hurts us and frustrates us and we find you know, ourselves getting a little annoyed and a little aggravated, we feel that old hate creeping back into our hearts. But we also know the Word of God, like the one we just read, and we realize that we are a long distance from that kind of love, the kind of love that Christ had. I mean, in our world, it's so much easier to love those who love us back. You know, there's that story, I think I've told it to you before, there's that, that story that's told about a, a singles online dating site. guy filled out all of the, the online forms, and one of the things he said was, you know, he said, you know, I don't really, you know, I'm not looking for a girl with great looks. I just want somebody that's intelligent. It, the lady filled out the online form and sent it in and said, you know what, I don't really care if he has money or not. I just want a dude that has some character. And after everything was processed, these two people were matched together on this computer site, and it was because they had something in common. They lied. <laughs> not that I'm against those sites. But we struggle with really, truly loving someone, even as Christians, unless there is a return on the investment. I mean, there are people that are just really easy to love because there's a return on the investment. I love them and I get something in return, like I get friendship 
or I get encouragement, or I get solidarity, or I get a few laughs, or whatever it might be. But it's easy to love somebody that I get a return on my investment. And Jesus says over and over and over, primarily in Matthew chapter 5, that when you love somebody, you got to love them like God. Not like the tax collectors and the pagans, which everybody understood, those that don't really know or understand God very well. But if you understand God and you love like God, then you love people even when they don't love you back. The second thing is, you know, not only are we failing at love, sometimes we just really struggle to love with each other, and that's why our hearts condemn us. We don't feel quite right, or we're not feeling the love. Quite frankly, it's hard to give what you don't have. And the majority of the experiences of love that we have had in this life were the result of someone finding something that's lovely and worthwhile and winsome in us. It might be a sense of humor. It might be looks. It might be an athletic ability. It might be intelligence. It might be the ability to make money. But the experience of unconditional love is rare. You, you know, when, when you lose somebody in this life like a spouse or you lose somebody in this life to death like a, a parent or a sibling or a family member, one of the reasons that it's, it's so tragic and so profound is because the experience of losing someone who loves you unconditionally is one of the most profound experiences in life because it's rare. To lose a parent who loves you unconditionally is one of the most profound moments in a human life or a child or it's because of that unconditional love. Walt Disney doesn't really do us any favors here either, even though Uncle Walt uh, teaches a lot of good morality lessons. He does kind of mess us up this way. You remember the fairy tale about a princess who has a, a spell cast on her and she falls asleep. And here comes this handsome prince. He comes and he kisses her. He awakens her from the spell. And what is the fairy tale called? Sleeping, not sleeping ugly. How do we know that Cinderella's stepsisters are evil? They're the ugly stepsisters. And there is this, this underlying lesson that you know, there has to be something lovely in somebody in order to love them, and if there's not, they're ugly and they're not worth loving. When we look in the mirror, we think we won't be loved unless... We lose a little weight, or we get surgically enhanced. We don't think that we're going to be loved unless we keep scoring touchdowns, or we keep making money, or we get the kind of job that everybody expects for us to get, and so on and so forth. It's always hard, and that's why it's a struggle. And that's why, though, it is a discipline to be involved in it mentally and spiritually. It's hard to believe that we are loved unconditionally by God. But then this text that David read for us has a couple of answers for us. The first, the first remedy is never forget that God knows everything. God knows every nook and corner and cranny in your life. God knows where the sun shines into your soul and God knows where there are cobwebs in your brain and in your heart. John says in verse 19, 
This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And He knows everything. I remember a young preacher, not myself, young preacher getting up one time and, and, and preaching this text and saying, what is the definition of everything? And we sat in the audience stunned. He goes, the definition of everything is everything. And he was right. There's not anything that God does not know about you. This verse reminds us that God knows everything. Now, knowing that God knows everything can make people a little bit anxious. Because we know full well that we're not perfect. And here are these eyes that are honest. But God's knowledge, according to Scripture, is not the cause of a fear, but the cause or the basis for hope. The reason is, is that God doesn't pretend that you're something you're not in order to love you. God knows exactly who you are. And God loves you in spite of the things that shame you. Psalm 33, David, this is not just in the New Testament. David in the Old Testament talks about these things as well. He says, from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. That means he sees everyone. What is the definition of everyone? Everyone. And from his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth, he who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. What's the definition of everything? Everything. What David is saying there is that God is not surprised by anything you do. But that doesn't mean that He loves you when you're good and doesn't when you're not. Drop down about three verses in that psalm. He says in verse 18, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him and on those whose hope is in His, say it with me, unfailing love. What's the definition of unfailing? It never fails. Right after Ellen and I were married, I discovered some prized collectibles that began to disappear. A life-size Willie Nelson poster. <laughs> Adios, Willie. A stuffed and mounted piranha. See you later, alligator and a black velvet Lord's Supper tapestry bought on the side of the road in Tennessee. And I'm wondering, who on earth would steal from a guy like me? Where did these things go? Just gone, like smoke. And then I discovered the culprit as she was about to commit an act of high treason. <laughs> Ellen was about to throw away my high school football not the game, but the practice jersey. Fortunately, she was saved from this act of sacrilege, and the jersey was saved. And as I'm wrenching it out of her grip, she goes, why do you... My kids love the way I imitate Ellen. It's, she's nothing like this, but I just like to do it anyway. She goes, she goes why do you want this thing? It's so ragged. She doesn't sound anything like that, but I just, it's funny to me. And I go, I know, but I love it. You know, intuitively, 
we know how to love something that's ragged. And so does God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, one of the great passages in the New Testament, Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, God demonstrates his own love, his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me just remind you that God knows everything about you. And His Son still died for you. And then number two, and this is the harder one, you've got to give God full access to your life. You've got to give God full access to your life. John heard Jesus say one day in John chapter 14, He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. It's kind of a curious little phrase, right? Uh, my father and I, God and I will come and we will make our home with them. I guess the question for me is how will God the Father and God the Son make their home in a believer? And the way that they do it, how God the Father, God the Son make their home in a believer is through God the Spirit. Pentecost rolls around 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost rolls around and the Spirit descends on the apostles and 3,000 believe because they repent and they are baptized and they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They receive that gift. And John says in 1 John three twenty four, the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. There's that language again. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. Mark Strong uh, tells this story. He was at a men's retreat. There were about 30 or 40 men of all ages that were sitting in this room, and they were sharing the joys and, and the deep heartaches of the soul. And there was this young fellow by the name of Jason who sat in a chair. His face was buried in his hands. His head would occasionally rise to gasp a breath as he just kept sobbing and sobbing. Why didn't my father want me? I don't understand why my father didn't want me. Why didn't he want me? What's wrong with me? And in this circle of about 30 or 40 guys, nobody knew what to say. Here's this young man who's just sobbing and sobbing because he doesn't feel like there's anything lovely in him that would be loved by his own earthly father. And he asked, am I such a defect that I am unlovable as a son and as a man? And what happened next was absolutely beautiful and it was totally unscripted. An older man by the name of Phil walked over to him and said, I will be your father. Here's this guy that's just really struggling with all of these feelings of worthlessness and feelings of defectiveness and unloved and unlovely when somebody comes and said I'd be honored to be your father and from that point on Phil was a father to Jason they'd meet for lunch he would mentor him they would share their families they would share their life and at the end of of Phil's life Mark Strong goes to talk to him and he and they turn to the special relationship that Phil and Jason have. And Phil says to Mark, 
you know, Jason is my son. I still have that, that old jersey. James, you want to bring that up? I didn't trust it to Alan. <laughs> Thank you. You know, it's not even a game jersey. It's, it's a practice jersey. It's, uh, if, if you were up close, you would see that it is pretty ragged. It is pretty ragged. And it's about as ragged of a garment as I have in my collection. But I, I love this old jersey for no good reason except that to me it's not ragged, it's priceless. And if you ever wonder in your feelings of raggedness whether or not God loves you, He does. Because anyone for whom His Son died and through His Son as faith is not seen as ragged to God, is seen as priceless. We'll have a couple of shepherds down here at the front if you need to respond or to talk or to pray with them for anything at all on your heart. And for the rest of us, let's praise God together. Heavenly armor will enter the land. The battle belongs to the Lord. No weapons says.